Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Hope everybody had a great day. A little rain earlier this morning, but a little sunshine this afternoon. So hopefully the Lord was able to bless you today with a a glorious day. Uh, As always, we'll be putting this up on YouTube. We'll be putting up on Rumble and on our podcast, RK Ministries. You can find that podcast anywhere podcasts are available and encourage you to go find it and like it subscribe to it so you can get the latest episodes that come out and then most importantly go and share it with your friends your family uh, even your enemies go and share it with them maybe they'll listen to it as well and uh, encourage you go find me on youtube go find me on rumble and like us there subscribe to it and share that uh, as well so uh did have a question that came in regarding uh something we talked about uh sunday night in revelation chapter 19 and on the return of uh, jesus christ and what that would look like so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today do a little bit a little bit of a, a deep dive uh not too deep but a little bit of a deep dive on that subject and i just i thought i'd start with just by reading the question to you and then we'll comment on some of the aspects of the question and then we'll we'll get into some of the aspects of the return of jesus got a lot of scripture in here that we'll we'll look at <clears throat> to kind of paint the picture of what the return of jesus will be like and then we'll we'll end it with uh maybe what the key thought or key takeaways ought to be from Revelation 19 or this idea of the final judgment in in general. So let me read the question to you. So the question starts off this past Sunday night. You taught on Revelation 19 in which Jesus comes as the warrior king. Uh, verse 15 of that chapter speaks of the sword of the, that comes from the mouth, from Jesus's mouth, that with it, he should strike the nations. Verse 13 calls Jesus the word of God. John also described Jesus as the word of God in chapter 1 uh, of the gospel of John. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Proverbs 18.21 says the death that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Considering these passages, what do you think Jesus is striking the nations looks like uh, at the end of time? So <clears throat> that's the question, and I guess the main part of the question is in light of this sword of the spirit or sword that comes out of the Lord's mouth uh, in Revelation 19. What does it look like that he's striking? And so the implication, maybe the underlying part of it is this, is it symbolic or is there a little literal aspect to the striking? Uh, down what what does that striking look like and so we'll endeavor to answer that question as we go through uh some of these scriptures and get to uh revelation 19 again uh toward the end so the first thing i want to do is, is talk about some of the aspects and passages that were brought up in in the question <clears throat> and make some distinctions i think they're important that we that we need to make I do think that the premise of the question is valid and that there is an element that Jesus will 
by virtue of his command, uh, bring about the, this striking down of the nations. And we'll flesh that out uh, through uh, some of these passages uh, when we get, uh, in particular, get through some of the ones we're going to go through in Revelation again. But first, uh, I thought about we, we need to uh, look at John's use because the first first one, other than Revelation 19, the first one that was brought up was John in his gospel in, in John chapter 1. And we know in John chapter 1, it begins in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as you know, I think, I forget if it was Sunday night or, or the last time we were on that I uh, quoted John 1 1 in the Greek uh, and we know the Greek word there that is used for word is logos and so from the first century perspective if you think about from a Gentile perspective in the first century is probably a better way to put it if you think about that the word or the term logos the term logos uh, would, would for the Greek would have this philo philosophical um, baggage is not the right, right word, but to have a phil philosophical air to it, because for the Greek, <clears throat> logos, the word, this this um, um, philosophical knowledge aspect, if you will, uh, it is that word or that logos that brought about unity in reality. It was that logos that held all of reality together and rather than going into chaos it was that logos that held all of reality uh together and so in one sense you know i think john you know although he's a jew would have been in tune with this understanding of logos because after all he's writing in uh the greek language and so he would have some understanding of the philosophical leanings of his uh greek uh neighbors right and so I, I don't think it is coincidental that he chose to write this way. I think there is this idea, kind of like Paul did in Athens, when Paul was standing before the uh, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he saw uh, he had seen the statue to the unknown God, and he starts out by saying, "Hey, I, I, I perceive that you folks are very religious people, and you got these statues to all these gods, and I saw this statue to this unknown God. So let me, in my paraphrase, let me tell you about this God that you do not know." And so he starts with creation and goes on to uh, Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. And I think John, why not necessarily in that exact same uh, uh, way, but John had the understanding of the importance of Logos in the Greek mind and this idea that, hey, this Logos brings about uh, unity and ultimate reason and ultimate truth. And so John, in a, in a roundabout way, is using this term to say, hey, let me show you or let me tell you who this true ultimate Logos is, this person of truth that does hold all things uh, together. And then secondly, it would be from a Jewish perspective, from a Hebrew perspective, in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew idea about God it almost interchangeable between God and his word. So God's word would equate to the person of God, just like the name of God equates to the character <clears throat> and being of God. And so it is, I think, that John understood this as well, being a Jew. So he comes to this from a Jewish perspective and from this Gentile perspective, 
perspective and telling both of them, uh, hey, let me let me help you understand uh, who underlies your thinking about this idea of the word of God or this word of reason uh, that holds all things together. And obviously we know uh, that he equates this word with God, uh, this word pre-existed with God in eternity. And then we know in verse 14 in John chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So with all that said, I think that it can lend to this idea that ultimately Jesus is the word of God as a matter or in, in that sense. He's when I say the word of God, I mean, he is the chief revelation of God because God's word is a way that he reveals himself to us. And so in one way, he's revealed himself to us in the written word, which we generally call the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, the Torah, Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, and then the uh, New Testament scriptures. Uh, and so in that way, God has revealed himself to us in his in his revealed word, his written word, which he spoke first, and then it was codified, written down, uh, and passed on to, through through generations of of believers. But in another way, God has revealed Himself ultimately in the true word, Jesus Christ, the living word. Uh, matter of fact, Hebrews one three tells us that He is the express image of the father and we know john tells us in one in, in chapter 1 verse 14 that this word this express or exact image of the father became flesh and dwelt among us so in one sense yes the essence of god's revelation is wrapped up in the person jesus christ we don't need to think of jesus merely in eternity past as just god's word or logic we need to think of jesus as the second person of the trinity who has always existed and he is in the incarnation the ultimate manifestation of everything that god the father has been prophesying and has been proclaiming to humanity through his spoken word so in that sense jesus is the word i think though and go ahead and lay my cards on the table i think though when we get to revelation 19 we talk about this word or this sword that's coming out of the mouth of jesus and the title he's the word of god um the word of god i think brings us back to john chapter one in this in this idea that jesus um is the ultimate revelation of god in that sense he is the ultimate revelation of truth. Uh, and we know that God's word is truth, right? So in that sense, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the truth of God that has been manifest to us in the written word. He, the living word, is the, is the physical manifestation of all of that truth in the embodiment of the second person of the Trinity. And then the sword, um, in one sense, uh, one of the passages that were in the question was uh, Hebrews 4.12, that, that the, the word of the Lord or the uh, word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword piercing to the very core of who we are, my paraphrase of that verse. And, and that is absolutely true. God's word is 
piercing in that way. But I, I think we have, we have to pull back just a little bit on uh, on Hebrews chapter four twelve because Hebrews chapter four verse twelve I think is specifically talking about um, the 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 revelation of God in particular in His prophetic utterances to the Hebrew people as it relates to this promise that God was leading them to. And the author of Hebrews is telling us in this, in this, that God's promises are sure and that this promised land that was in Canaan was not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that there is yet a promise that remains but the i think the author of hebrews is making this argument that god's word is true and valid uh even though canaan wasn't the ultimate promised land that there is a promise yet uh to be received by the people of god which we who are believers are all uh privy to that same promise as we come in in christ so in that sense it is the literal prophetic word and promise of God made to Israel that is true and relevant and and piercing but by extension I don't want you to go away thinking that I don't believe that the entire Bible is that way the entire Bible is uh, a, a, a piercing living word because it is the mirror to our soul right it is it is it is what we look into to see who God is and what we look into to see the reflection of, of who we are and our depravity and our need for God so in that way it is this this piercing living word that changes and as Paul says in Romans chapter 12 it is what uh, in John we learned that in Sunday school in John this past week it is it is through the word of God that our minds are uh, transformed it is through the word of God that uh, we are sanctified and it changes us. So in that way, it is relevant and living uh, and, it, and it impacts our life. And it's, it's the tool, it's, I think it's the primary tool that the Holy Spirit uses in the life of a, belie- of a believer to bring about the sanctifying uh, work <clears throat> of God. Uh, and, and so in that way, it it's akin to uh, what we're going to be talking about in Revelation, because I think in Revelation, this word that's coming out of this sword that's coming out of its mouth is is the command the, the, to go forth and to bring about all of these all of these judgments that are portrayed in in the book of, of Revelation on that day of the Lord. And we see God over and over again, again, laying my cards on the table in the beginning. We see God over and over again in Revelation uh, commanding these angels to do things, uh, to open and things you know jesus is opening the seals and he's sending forth these angels to do particular things in relation to this judgment that is coming and so uh, i think we see that over and over again in revelation and this this sword that's coming out of his mouth this word uh, if you will the word of the lord is actually his commands that bring forth the actions of this judgment that's going to be unfolded uh, on this earth and then the one of the other passages that were brought forth was Proverbs eighteen twenty one, uh, life and or death and life are in the power of the tongue, and that is exact. That is absolutely true. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. But I think that passage, if we if we want to equate it with what we're talking about in Revelation, that we're pressing a little bit hard on that passage to to fit it in with what we're talking about in Revelation. Although that doesn't mean that God cannot speak life and death with his word. He can. Uh, but I think in Proverbs is specifically talking about uh, the way we use words in our 
uh, in our life that and it kind of parallels what James talks about in his epistle as it relates to the tongue and and it's that that fierce fire that's in the tongue that can set a set a blaze you know a whole whole forest uh, and the danger of the tongue and how we use it and I think that's really the context in which uh, Solomon was writing this uh, this proverb in Proverbs chapter Proverbs eighteen twenty one. And we can see this idea of death and life in, in the tongue in, in three ways. Uh, one is this, uh, I, it is in a physical sense. I don't want to belittle that aspect because it is the death and life are in the tongue and it that is applicable physically. And an example of that is, hey, what if a, a doctor speaks to a patient regarding a disease that they have and he uh, speaks to them either medication that they can take to help with that disease or he speaks to them uh, surgery, you know, hey, you need to have surgery to help deal with this disease. Well, that there's there's life in those words if we if we are obedient and obey uh those words then that can that can help us in our life and make our life better and more uh more productive and live longer if we refuse those words then we bring a really death to ourself uh quickly potentially uh nothing wrong getting a second opinion right but potentially we could bring death to ourselves if we do not uh, follow or heed those words of warning. Another example of that is in a court of law. When you have a judge and a jury and a person is on trial, jury with their words can physically condemn a person to death, put them, uh, give them the death sentence uh, or a judge in the, in the same way. Or they can they can spare that person's life. Well, they not may not spare them from punishment. They could spare that person's life with their words. So in that way, I think it's it's a, a physical aspect of death, life and death in the word. And again, if you think about it another way, even murder. Uh, if you think about murder or <clears throat> uh, or, or something to that uh, like that. A lot of times a murder starts with disagreements and arguments, and, and so that begins with words, and it leads ultimately to an act of, of murder that, that ends the life of a person. So in that way, it can be physical. So the second way that it can be is it it's also can be uh, emotional, right? We've all heard the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, words do harm, right? They, they do inflict emotional uh, pain on people when we use words. And as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we're going to be judged by for every idle word that we say. That's how important it is for us to understand the power, if you will, of words and the importance of words. And we can harm people emotionally, by the way we use our words and then the third aspect of that is uh is spiritually and i think in one sense it words depict the life or death of our spirit or our soul because inherently we are depraved people when we come into this world all of us in adam are depraved and while our words don't always depict the totality of our depravity because of God's common grace. We, we don't always speak and use our words or what comes out of our, the inner man or inner being is not always as wicked and defiled as it could be, but there are elements of it that may, that manifest itself by the way we communicate with one another. 
And so in that sense, it shows the depravity of our soul and um, the eternal, you know, death of our soul if, if, if in the way we speak. And, and I think conversely, it can, it can depict the transforming life of God that has impacted us as we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, by the way we use our words as well. And so I think that, yes, in, in that sense, life and death are in the power, are in words. Uh, but I don't think we can take that passage and bring it over to uh, Revelation 19 and, and, and put it on what's, what's necessarily happening there. But in a roundabout way, uh, it still is relevant because God can use his word to speak things uh, and things happen to command things and things <clears throat> will happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So with all of that said, I thought that we ought to just look at this idea of this day of judgment that's going to come. Because really that's what Revelation 19, uh, 11 and following is really about. It is about the day of the Lord. It is about that day in which Christ comes again to bring about the culmination of this age and, and pour out God's judgment and wrath on this world. And the Old Testament has been shouting this uh, in, in all, through all of its pages. All the prophets have been shouting about this day that is to come. So the the underlying, I mean, I guess the, the main heart of the question posed was what will this day look like? What does it look like for the smiting uh, or the striking down of the nations? Well, I thought we first ought to at least get a flavor from the Old Testament of what this day of the Lord uh, is like. And so I, I got several passages, most of them fairly short, that we ought to look at and, and just follow this thread of the day of the Lord through the Old Testament, and we'll begin to get a flavor of what this is going to look like in that day. Now, again, it's not going to give us this idea of uh, what this sword literally is. It's going to just tell us <clears throat> and give us pictures, just like Revelation does, as to the devastation and destruction and maybe the emotional picture uh, and the anguish that's going to come on the day of the Lord. And then when we get to Revelation, I'll point out what I think that day is going to look like. So first is Isaiah uh, 2, 11 through 12. And you, you can write these down. I know you won't be able to turn to them quick enough to find them unless you get really fast fingers on your, on your uh, digital device maybe or you're really good in Bible drills. But Isaiah 2, 11 through 12. Uh, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will exalt in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So again, I don't have, for the sake of time, I'm going to try not to comment extensively on every one of these verses, but just to give you some broad picture things because here it is the pride and the proud and the lofty who are who are raised up if you will against God and you got to have that that sense of the air of Satan behind that Isaiah chapter 14 right well that was that was one of Satan's problems it's pride that brought him low right and so we see this same thing this rebellion against God but the point is that God has appointed a day to deal with once and for all, all of those who are in rebellion uh, against him. And so Isaiah, and again, in, in Isaiah 13, six and nine, 
It says, wail for the day of the Lord. And that's how the Old Testament depicts what we read about in Revelation, in particular Revelation 19, where we see Christ coming uh, on the white horse. Uh, he says, wail for the day of the Lord is near. And you can think about this in Isaiah's day right? Thousands of years removed from us, thousands of years removed from us. Isaiah is saying the day of the Lord is near. It is imminent. And we get that same sense of imminence in the New Testament. The day of the Lord is near. And listen to how he describes what's going to happen on this day of the Lord. And again, I believe what we read in Revelation 19, and it is by this sword that is in the mouth of Christ, which we'll clarify as we go through, that these things take place. As destruction from the Almighty. So the day of the Lord is going to bring destruction. Almighty, it will come. In verse 9 of that same chapter 13 of Isaiah, behold, the day of the Lord comes, and listen to how he describes it, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So it is a cruel, wrathful day in which God is going to deal with sin and sinners once and for all. Ezekiel 13, 5, you have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle. And again, in the day of the Lord. So this day of the Lord in Ezekiel, he pictures it as a battle. That's the same thing we see in Revelation 19 excuse me, Revelation 19, this battle of Armageddon that, that is coming. <clears throat> so this day of the Lord is fierce, is cruel, it's a day of desolation, it's a day of wrath, it's a day of battle. Um, again, Ezekiel 30, 2 through 3. Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. Again, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, before Jesus ever uh, was incarnated, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds. And this is a recurring theme in, in, in the Old Testament as it relates to this day of the Lord. And I think it correlates with this idea of, of, of darkness, maybe. We know, again, just thinking off the top of my head, we, we think about Jesus coming in, in, in amongst the clouds, if you will. Um, but listen to the parallel passage or parallel phrase that goes with that <clears throat> said time of doom for the nation so it's not a pleasant day that's coming this day of the lord destruction cruelty uh, wrath doom joel 115 alas for the day and there's some make make uh, uh, much about this idea that joel says uh, this is going to happen in one day and again, it makes sense because this phrase, this recurring theme throughout the Old Testament is the day of the Lord. Now, I get it. <clears throat> and there's the argument from Genesis about day, yom, where the yom is, is a literal 24-hour or, or day ages in Genesis. While day can be used as a 24-hour day, almost always if it has the uh, cardinal number with it, like as in Genesis 1, the, the first day, the second day, then it has to do with a 24-hour day. 
Whereas it can also be used just like we use it sometimes to mean in the day in which we live, right? The age, the, the era, the time frame in which we live. And so in, in some sense, you might can make an argument for that. But I think that what we see in Joel one fifteen that this is a single day. And when you read about what we read, and I made mention of it, I think, in uh, in chapter 19 and maybe in, in the previous chapters where, where we see this battle uh, going on again, is that it happens in an instant. We have three, I think it was three sentences, maybe in, in chapter 19, that depicted this battle. And it doesn't even seem like the armies that come with Jesus have anything to do with the battle. It is Jesus himself through this word that he he proclaims the sword that comes out of his mouth that he deals with the false prophet and the beast and the uh, the nations. Uh, and so it happens in an instant. And so we see Joel again, alas, the day for the day of the Lord is near and, and as destruction from the almighty, it comes. So again, this day is the day of destruction. And in particular on those who are in rebellion against God. Don't forget that. Uh, Joel 2 1, 2 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Now, blowing a trumpet, you, it has to do with battle. It's either to initiate battle or showing that you have won the battle. A victory trumpet. <clears throat> uh, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Man, can you sense the imminence of the day of the Lord? That That's, that's one of the things. <clears throat> that caused me to shift my uh, eschatology. When I come to understand from God's word that dispensationalism is untenable from God's word, but God's coming in Christ is still depicted as imminent. There's really only one other eschatological construct that speaks to an imminent return of Christ, and that's all millennialism. <clears throat> and so, uh, going on, uh, Joel two eleven, the Lord utters his voice before his army for the camp, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. Now don't miss that phrase. I think that bears with what we're going to be talking about in Romans chapter 19. These commands of God, I think that is the ultimate essence of what this sword that is coming out of the, of the Lord's mouth is. And with this sword of his word, to go back to the question, yes, I think it is the word of God, the commands of God, the declaration of God that is dependent depicted in this picture of this sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. And it's by way of these commands that he is going to strike these nations. And we'll see what those commands look like in just a bit. For the day of the Lord, back in Joel 2, 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Well, the ultimate answer is no one save those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Joel 2, 11, the sun shall be turned to darkness. We've seen that language in Revelation. The moon to blood. We see that language in Revelation. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel 3, 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Uh, and there's a prayer book out put out by Pur Puritan uh, authors that uh, is called Valley of Decision. And it is a 
powerful book of Puritan prayers. If you don't have that book, you ought to get it. Uh, I think you can probably even, if you're really uh, in, intuitive, you can probably Google it and find a PDF version of it. But it is a very powerful devotional tool. You ought, you ought to find it and use it. Anyway, back to this. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. I think it's the valley of vision is what that book's called. Uh, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Again, the eminence of it. And, and listen, same language we read in Revelation. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Again, I think this, what Joel is saying is leading us to this, the ultimate understanding of what's taking place in Revelation when the Lord is issuing these commands and as these commands are are fulfilled or carried out, then we see this destruction come to the nations. And we'll point that out with some passages in, in Revelation. All right, so where was I? Uh, in, in chapter Joel 3, 14 through 16, maybe the sun, the moon lose, uh, will, will be darkened. The stars will withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from uh, Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. Man, don't miss that passage. We can stop and preach on that one the rest of the night, right? Um, because we are not a people of wrath. We are not going to be subject to the wrath of God in that day. Uh, we, he is our refuge. This wrath will be poured out on all those who are, remember how we started? Lofty, who are prideful, who are in rebellion against God. Uh, and then he goes on. He's a stronghold to the people of Israel. And then we go to Amos, Amos 5, 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as, a, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. And that powerful word picture, the day of the Lord is going to be like this. When God pours out his wrath on the wicked, when he breaks to pieces the nations, when he strikes them, strikes them down, it is as if they are running for their lives from a lion and they run headlong into a bear that devours them. It's powerful, powerful pictures that are being painted about this great day of judgment that's going to come on this world when Jesus returns. So they're running from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. So again, you can't escape the judgment that is to come. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Beginning to get the picture of what this day is going to look like. It is going to be a devastating day for those who are in rebellion against Almighty God, and you cannot escape it. The only hope for you is to have, uh, have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, been redeemed by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Obadiah 1.15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And again, just the way the Bible talks about God's dealing with the nations, that's another reason that it turned me from being dispensational to this idea of all millennialism because of this already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God and what Jesus said when he stepped into excuse me, his earthly ministry uh, in, in Mark chapter 1 in particular, he says, uh, 
repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right now, God is reigning. Right now, the nations are to be under uh, the authority of God. They are in rebellion against God in this moment, and judgment is coming uh, to them because of that rebellion including this great nation that we live in, as it is, as you can see, just by watching the news, in rebellion against God. Uh, Obadiah 115, I think that's where I was, uh, the second part. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on you, on your own head. We kind of seen language like that in this judgment of the prostitute you remember in uh, revelation 18 uh, that great prostitute she was judged according to the things that she had done and, and as a matter of fact a double portion was given to her for the things that she had done and then uh two more in, in the old testament then we'll move on to the new testament zephaniah 1 7 and 14 through 17 be silent before the lord god for the day of the lord is near can you see that imminent thread of the day of the lord all the way through the Old Testament. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The, the closer we get to the, the the last book of the Old Testament, it seems like, again, I know that they're not always in chronological, chronological order, but you can't help but see that feel of this ramping up of the imminence of the day of the Lord. So the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds. Second time we've seen that. And darkness. Again, I think this idea of clouds and darkness go together. And a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified city. So God is raising up in battle, if you will, against the nations, just like the nations are raising up in battle against the Lord. And here's the reality uh, about, about that. We think about this day of Armageddon that is that is coming well what you and i need to understand right now the nations are in rebellion against god right now satan is at work stirring up the nations to do battle against the people uh, of god the rest of the woman's offspring from revelation chapter 12 right now this world system is at war against the people of god but there is coming an ultimate day when god will bring that battle to an end in an instant and in a moment so it goes on, and, and a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the uh, lofty battlements, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. And so again, you kind of see some of the elements we read about in Revelation 19, you know, all through Revelation about what God is going to do in this final day of judgment when Christ returns. It's not going to be a pretty day. It's going to be a day where the nations and the rebellions, the rebellious against God will be destroyed in, 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 by, by the Lord. Um, 
Malachi 4, 5, last Old Testament passage. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And again, we could camp out on that verse because, you know, Jesus makes it very plain that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this idea of the coming of Elijah. And so that is the precursor to this day of the Lord. So if the day of the Lord was imminent in the Old Testament and one of the signs of the coming of the day of the Lord was the coming of Elijah, how much more imminent is it now since John John the Baptist has fulfilled that role of Elijah. It is, it is pressing upon us. Uh, and again, not to get to the end too quickly, but that, that is the reason that we must be a people who share the gospel as often as we can with whomever we can, because that is the only hope, because this day of the Lord is pressing upon us in a very imminent way. I don't know when it's coming. And if anybody tells you they know when it's coming, then they are deceiving you. We can see we can see the imminence of it. We can sense the imminence of it, right? But we don't know the exact moment that it's going to happen. We can see the signs that are there, knowing that it's coming, and feel its presence, and feel the birth pains. But I don't know the day nor the hour, and, and no one else does uh, either. Jesus said he didn't even know the day or the hour. Only the Father knew the day and the hour. But the point is, if it was imminent in the Old Testament, how much more imminent is it now for you and for me? We must be ready for that day. Uh, now, a few passages in the New Testament to talk about this day of the Lord, and hopefully you begin to get this flavor of this day of the Lord. Acts 2.20 And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Again, that is in one sentence is a summation of what we read about in you know 19 chapters or really four uh, 15 chapters we start at chapter 4 to to 19 in revelation uh, where we're at right now it, that is one sentence summarizes the wonders and signs we see on heaven and earth the visions that god has given to to john it says blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day so again we see this same thing carried over into the new testament that's the bible is replete with this idea of the coming of this day of the lord it's going to be a devastating wrathful destructive day for the wicked uh first corinthians 5 5 you are to deliver this man to satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord so paul even talking about this one who was committing uh this sin by marrying his uh stepmother i think it was in 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 the church of corinth uh, ultimately it's about saving his soul in the day of the lord that day that is to come second corinthians 1 14 just as you did pay, uh partially understand us that on the day of the lord jesus will boast of us as we will boast of him so again uh, the new testament talking about this coming of the lord this day of the lord when christ will come so the New Testament sheds a little bit more light on it, right? Because before we see the day of the Lord as the day of God's vengeance, right? And we see in the New Testament uh, the idea that Christ is ultimately the one coming in judgment on the day of the Lord. First Thessalonians 5, 2. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And again, some of these passengers, I, I didn't use, uh, I think it's 4.13, uh, uh, where it deals with, with the uh, uh, what I call the resurrection rapture, right? Uh, where we are changed in a moment in twinkling of an eye. But it's all talking about this day of the Lord. And it's one event that takes place. That's another reason that I moved away from uh, dispensational theology because I believe the Bible is telling us there is no secret rapture of the church. There is one day in which Christ is coming again. And in that day, the dead in Christ will be raised and those who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. They'll be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye. First uh, Thessalonians 4 and First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Then Second Thessalonians 2, 2. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So again, Paul reminding them that there is coming a day of the Lord. Carrying on that Old Testament theme. Second, Second Thessalonians uh, 2, 7 through 12. For the for he for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And again, wish I could stop and camp out on that, right? Because we think about the Antichrist. Yes, in in that in, in the end time, I think there will we are moving toward this one world system, this one world uh, kind of religious order. You can see that on the horizon. Don't know how long it's going to take us to get there, but, but you see it on the horizon. And so there will be this embodiment, if you will, uh, of the Antichrist in that way. But what the Bible's art tell us, hey, this the idea, the spirit of this age, the, the, the manifestation of what this ultimate antichrist will bring is already at work among us today. I think another place in the Bible says many antichrists are already among us. Uh, only he who now restrains, and again, we'll have time to talk about that. We talked about it in the introductory portion uh, of Revelation. So if you want to go back and find that on the podcast, uh, you can go and find that or either look through Facebook Lives that we've done, and you can find that uh, introductory portion dealing with uh, part of these introductory matters as it relates to why I don't believe in dispensationalism and who this restrainer might be. We don't have time to deal with that tonight, but uh, only he who now restrains it will uh it will do so until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the lord jesus will kill and this this is probably the most prescient verse as it relates to what we read in revelation 19 15 about the the sword that's coming out of the mouth of the lord and it's with this sword that he strikes down the nations uh it says here in uh first in second thessalonians chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus will kill them with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearing the appearance of his coming or the brightness of his coming. So again, uh, the Lord is going to destroy them. And again, I believe he can speak it and they'll be dead, right? No question about that. But I think the way that plays out in Revelation is the commands that God gives to these angelic beings, to these demonic beings that we read about in Revelation that carry out these commands that this day of the Lord is unfolded. And this is how that battle ultimately 
goes because you got to remember where I'm coming from as it relates to Revelation is that each one of these visions are telling us the same story just from a little different perspective and there is this spiraling effect if you will because we we are uh, as we're getting into these visions we're we are seeing more and more aspects of what God is doing in the coming of Jesus Christ and it's spiraling us to that climactic point when we see Christ come again. But every one of these visions, if you've been following us in Revelation, every one of these visions have brought us to the culmination of the age. Right? And the same thing has happened in, in Revelation 19. We've even seen it in some of the interludes. We've been brought to the culmination of, of the age. And so I think Revelation, again, is a picture book, not a puzzle book. And it is painting for us the picture of what that one day of the Lord is going to look like. Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Again, one in the same, the day of the Lord is one complete event. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Man, that's a summation of what we read about in Revelation, isn't it? One sentence. All right, so that leads me to maybe some more talk uh, relating to Revelation and what we see in Revelation. In, in driving home the point I really have already made, I'll try not to belabor it too long. I've still got several passages I want to go through, but uh, I don't want to belabor it too long. But I guess you can come back and watch however long you want to watch. But again, I've already said, I think that there is this correlation to this sword coming out of Jesus's mouth that relates to his word. I think Second Thessalonians uh, chapter two, verse eight, I believe it was, is, uh, is pivotal to our understanding of what Revelation 19 is talking about. With the breath of his mouth, he's going to destroy th- these people with this with this rod that comes out of his mouth he's going to destroy as the old testament says it this rod that comes out of his mouth he's going to destroy um, the nations and i think that that rod that sword this breath ultimately is the commands of jesus the commands of god if you will that are given to these heavenly beings these angelic beings these demonic beings these forces we see in revelation to carry out these commands and it's the carrying out of these commands that are uh, that repre- are represented by this this sword of the Lord, this word of of God, and again, I think just like Joel in, in indicates that this is this happens. The things we're reading about in these visions, they happen in a single day. This is one one massive culmination of of Christ coming, and when He comes, these things happen, and the end comes in that instant. And we just read that in Second Peter three ten, right? But the day of the Lord is coming like that thief. Then in that day is the implication: the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And that's what we've been reading about in Revelation. Every one of these visions have had some aspect of the heavenly bodies being dissolved or passing away or or burning up, and that impacting the earth in some way. And again, that's why I say this is a recapitulation of this story over and over again in Revelation. It's telling 
telling us the same story about the same day over and over again, driving this point home. All right, uh, just a couple passages about this day of the Lord. How is it that God is going to strike down these nations with this word, this sword, the sword of his word that comes out of his mouth? Uh, again, not to belabor you with scripture, but hey, if you don't get anything else, you get the word of God, right? And like I told him Wednesday night at Friendship Baptist Church, I don't have anything to say to you but what the word of God says to you. And if I try to say to you something that is, in, that is contrary to God's word, then you ought not listen to me ever again, right? Because every preacher, we have nothing to say other than what God has already said. We are his mouthpiece to say to you what he has said. Uh, yes, we, we give commentary. We give, uh, you know, maybe uh, dive into the word studies and those kinds of things. But every, all that commentary, all the word studies, every bit of it ought to, ought to lead back to what God has said in his word. All right, so Revelation paints this picture for us of what's going to happen in this day. And we see over and over again these, uh, these commands that are given by God, ushered from the throne room of God. And so just to give you a flavor of that again, I, again, I think all these things happen in this one day, in this retelling of the same story. Uh, Revelation 6, we had the, the seal judgments, right? When Jesus came and opened up the seals. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its, its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Man, if that happened, how can we say that in the next chapter when we, or the next uh, couple chapters when we read about the trumpet judgments, that the earth is still standing? If this happened in the day that he, we're reading about in chapter six, there's nothing left for any other judgments to come. The earth is older, older ultimately and utterly destroyed. And he goes on to say, then the kings of the earth and the great ones of the generals and the rich and the poor and every slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come come and who can stand we read that almost exact sentence in the old testament right the day of the lord revelation 6 is telling us about the day of the lord in the seal judgments and so when we get over to revelation chapter 8 and we start to read about the trumpet judgments we're talking about the exact same day we see a little bit more of the picture we see a little bit different angle of the picture and again, what God is commanding in these visions is what we read about is happening in that three sentences in Revelation 19, him striking the nations with that sword that's coming out of his mouth. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew the trumpet and there, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. 
And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew the trumpet. Something uh, like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water the name of the star was wormwood and a third of the waters became wormwood and many people died from the waters because it had been made bitter the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and the third of the day might be kept from shining likewise a third of the night so again can you imagine if the sun and the moon just those two were struck the moon controls the tide on planet earth in its proximity to this ball that we spin around on and can you imagine the devastation that would happen on earth if if a third of the moon was struck in some way it would it would affect the tide immensely Maybe tidal waves. I don't know what would happen uh, if the moon was struck in that way or the sun was struck in that way. Can you imagine the environmental impact on this planet if the sun was struck and a third of it did not shine anymore? There are going to be people that freeze to death. There would be in inhabitable places on this planet. And so, again, you've got to see, if you think with any kind of critical thinking, you've got to be able to see that these are telling us about the same event from a slightly different perspective because no one ultimately could survive completely on this planet if it was devastated the way we just read about in Revelation chapter 8, verse 6 through 12. And again, I think it's these commands that God is giving from this throne room. It is through these commands that Jesus is striking down these nations and these rebellious people. All right, uh, I don't know how far I get in this one, but this one's a little bit more lengthy. It's verse, uh, chapter 16. It's chapter 16 is the seven bold judgments. These are the major three visions that deal with the judgment uh, motif that John gives us in Revelation. And so we'll go. Uh, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl in, on the earth and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped the image. Don't miss that. Who's it, who's it impacting? Those who are in rebellion against God. And again, we talked about this in, in, in Revelation 16. A lot of this mimics what we see in Exodus, right? What God, the plagues that God poured out on Exodus. But again, this is how I think that Revelation 19 is ultimately being fulfilled. Because I think what's going on in Revelation 19 is exactly what's happening in Revelation 6, Revelation 8, Revelation 16. Uh, so painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Uh, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of, of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. How do you think that impacted human life if every living creature in the sea died? Greatly, right? Because a lot of people get their food from the sea. Uh, most of us like seafood, but there there are people who they 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 their life is determined by the sea. 
the third angel blew out his bowl in the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just as you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, just are you, rather, because God is the one bringing these judgments. For you have shed the blood of the saints, uh, for they, excuse me, uh, those who are in rebellion, who worship the beast and bow to his image, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Uh, almost sounds exactly what he was saying about the uh, destruction of this uh, prostitute, great uh, Babylon we read about in chapter 18. Uh, it was why they, it was what they deserve. And I heard, this is verse seven in chapter 16, and I heard the alt, and I heard the altar say, and again, uh, you know, this is emanating from the throne room of God. Yes, Lord God almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was swallowed or excuse me, I can't read, I want to throw an S on the front of allowed. It was allowed uh, to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had poured over, uh, or who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Wow, that's all I can say about that sentence, right? Then faith, or then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and on its kingdom, whose was plunged and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Again, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to strike the kingdoms. How? With this sword, this word that comes out of his mouth. This is a command. Hey, he poured out, he, he, he called him to pour out this bowl and this bowl struck the beast and it struck these kingdoms. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Twice we've seen that in that in this chapter. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up the, the, uh, to prepare the way for the kings of the east. This is preparing the way for the battle, right? And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits uh, performing signs who go abroad to, to the kings of the whole world to uh, assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Again, we see that theme, this day of the Lord, this single solitary event of the return of Christ. All of this, I think, happens in a single day, this battle that is to come. Now, that doesn't mean that these, Satan is not right now roaming this earth, uh, alluring through the spirit of this age, the kings of this world against the people of God and against God himself and getting ready to array them in battle in that day that is to come. But this battle takes place in that single solitary day and every one of these things that we're reading about takes place in that day, bringing, this, bringing us to the culmination of the age. And so he's going to the place called Armageddon there in the end of verse 16. Uh, verse 17, the, angel, the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air uh, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done and there were flashings of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder of great earthquakes such as there had never been since man was on the earth so great was the earthquake the great city was split into three parts again this great city 
probably in John's perspective, in the first century perspective, Rome, uh, I think ultimately uh, pointing to the great uh, powerhouse of the, the, the beast, uh, this great Babylon. And the cities of the nations fell. What's Jesus going to do with the sword that's coming out of his mouth? He's going to strike the nations, strike the kings, right? Uh, and so it comes from this command that he has given for these events, these pouring out of these bold judgments uh, to come. And every island fled away. What would happen if you think every island fled away? There had to be a flood on this earth, right? Or a massive earthquake that, that destroyed this earth. And no mountains were to be found. Again, can you can anybody survive what we are reading here? This is all it, the language is similar. Chapter six, chapter eight, chapter uh, sixteen. They were reading in the language is all similar. It's the same story being told to us uh, over and over again. Slightly different perspectives, slightly different angle views. The great city was split in three parts. The cities, nations fell. God re remembered Babylon the great to make her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Revelation 18, right? Uh, and every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And, the, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So again, this day of the Lord, I think that is a picture of exactly how things are going to unfold by way of the command of Christ uh, in this word, this sword that protrudes from his mouth. And so that led us to uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, where we uh, were last Sunday. And really the heart of what this question is all about. And so just, again, read with me or listen as I read uh, the scene we see in the coming of the Lord. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but it, but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and we talked about that blood in last Sunday's uh, going through this chapter you can go find that on Facebook live YouTube Rumble or the podcast and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And again, I have no doubt that that is a parallel to what John talks about in John chapter one, same author that he's talking about uh, that's writing this And God. God is the one who inspired the gospel and God is the one who inspired uh, this revelation and gave him the visions. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses for from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule uh, them with a rod of iron again uh, not not to make this too long but psalm chapter 2 you ought to go read psalm chapter 2 it talks exactly about this 
really the heart of what's happening in Revelation, the rebellion of the nations against God and uh, God laughing at them in derision and God saying he's established his king in Zion and he's called the nations to bow down to to him and to kiss the son, his Messiah, his anointed one, uh, lest they taste his judgment and Christ will rule them, the Messiah will rule them with this rod of iron and he's going to break them into pieces like potter's vessels, it says. So there's going to be this element of judgment, again, even in the book of Psalms as it relates to this coming of Messiah. And and again, they gather together for this battle in verse 17. This angel standing in the sun, he cries out with a loud voice, calling all the birds of of the air to come to the great supper of God. One person said there are two suppers in Revelation. One is a supper that you're invited to, that you get to sit down at the table and enjoy the presence of the the bridegroom as you are his bride, the church, the, the people of God, and you're feasting at him at that table. And the second supper is you are the supper. And because you're in rebellion against God and you have suffered the judgment of God and you become the food for those who are the flocks of birds in the air. You don't want to be part of the second supper. You want to be a part of the first supper. And the only way to be a part of the first supper is that you bow the knee to Jesus Christ. God has commanded you to repent and believe. He's commanded you to confess before him that you are a sinner and that Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you will do that, you will will be saved and be part of that uh, first supper rather than the second uh, supper. And then it goes on. We, we won't belabor the the uh, uh, rest of chapter 19. We read that on Sunday. You can go back and, and hear our talk on that. But I believe this sort of the the the, the this coming out of Jesus's mouth does have this correlation of his word like Second Thessalonians 2 8 is, is to me is key to understanding. It is through his spirit. Speaking of these commands, the breath of his mouth through the speaking of these commands that we see in the rest of Revelation and all of these visions that bring about this judgment uh, and this striking down of the nations. So with all that said, uh, let me give you some verses to write down and you can go read them. I, I won't read all of these to you. I've read a plenty to you tonight. Uh, 11, uh, Isaiah 11, 4. Uh, you need to go read that. It's a good parallel passage to this idea of the breath of God's lips and the bringing about of judgment. So again, I think it's through the command, God speaking these commands that brings about judgment. Isaiah 49, 2. Again, it's with his mouth, this this, this like a, show, a sword. Uh, and again, so it's God speaking, I think, these commands is bringing about this judgment. Isaiah 63, 2 through 3 is a real good parallel passage. I think we may have brought that up in in Sunday's discussion on Revelation 19. There's a real good parallel passage to what's going to happen in Revelation 19, that Jesus is ultimately treading the the fury of the wrath of of God in this winepress of of wrath. And so God is going to bring his wrath, and he's doing it through Christ, and Christ is speaking these commands, and these commands are being carried out, and we see the picture of what that looks like in these three main visions, really, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter uh, 16 in Revelation. That's how Christ strikes the nations with this sword that comes out of his mouth. So what is the ultimate takeaway 
from the book of, of or from Revelation, from everything we've talked about tonight, and in particular from Revelation 19 or what we read in Revelation. Listen, the, there is a day that God has set aside to judge this world. And Paul says in his, his sermon in, in Acts chapter 17, uh, there on Mars Hill, that he has proven that by raising a man from the dead, meaning Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be the one to judge this world. And when he comes again, and he will come again, he is going to come with judgment. And he is going to judge this world just like it was described in the book of Revelation. He's going to bring every nation and every wicked person will be brought under subjection unto him. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Here's the kicker. You have to do that today. You have to do that while you have breath in your lungs. You have to do that before Christ returns in those eastern sky. That's the main takeaway from Revelation. Is not as much about how God is going to do what he does in judgment, but the fact that he is going to do what he does in judgment. He's going to judge all of those who are in rebellion against him. And if you are in rebellion against him, you will suffer the judgment of God, not only in this temporal sense here on earth, but in an eternal sense in the lake of fire. And we'll talk more about that when we get in Revelation chapter 20 uh, next week. I believe when we're in Revelation chapter 20, you will suffer the wrath of God. If you're alive when Christ comes again, you'll feel it in a very, a very present, real way uh, in, in your physical body here on earth. But you will also feel it for all of eternity in your resurrected body because everybody's going to be raised from the dead. That's the thing sometimes we forget about. Every person who's ever been born is going to be raised from the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And every one of them will get a brand new body suited for eternity. The righteous into eternal glory and into the presence of God where they will be with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. We'll read about in Revelation uh, 20, 21. And the wicked into everlasting damnation into the lake of fire. We'll read about it at the end of Revelation chapter 20, beginning about verse 13 to 15. Here's the question. Which group are you in? Are you in the group of people who are still in rebellion against Jesus Christ? Another reality that you ought to take away from this, if you think about it in a, in a real practical sense. If you remember, we read over and over again in all the verses in the Old Testament we, we cited <clears throat> that the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. Even in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is near. Well, at least from a New Testament perspective, we are over 2,000 years removed from the time that those words were written. And we are even thousands of years more removed from the time those words were rewritten in the Old Testament. How many people have died since then? Millions of people have died since those words were first written. The reality of life is, as imminent as the return is, the reality of life is that the majority of 
people on planet earth will stand before God through death rather than stand before God called because Christ came the second time. Christ is coming. And if we are part of that last and final generation, then we will see him face to face in his coming in the sky. But the reality of life is that more people have met God through death than will meet him on that day in that way. So you need to be prepared today. That's why the Bible writers, the Bible authors, that's why God inspired them to say that today is the day of salvation because you're not promised tomorrow. And my friend, if you die today, if you die tonight in your sleep, you will stand before your maker. You will be found guilty and your soul will be cast into outer darkness awaiting that final day of judgment. When your soul and body are reunited, you stand before the great white throne of God and you are found once and for all guilty and you are cast forever into a lake of fire. And there's only one hope for you. There's only one hope for me. And that is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is appease God's wrath for sin. And placate our guilt for sin. Jesus on the cross of Calvary was crushed under the mighty wrath of God the Father in your place and in my place. That's why Paul writes the way he does in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. He stood in our law place on that cross. He bore our guilt. He bore our shame. He bore our wrath on the cross of Calvary. And in the second part of that verse, Paul says he did that. All of my sin, my guilt, my shame was imputed to Christ's account. And he did that so that if I would but bow my knee to him, as Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if I will confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. That's another way of saying I bow my will to Christ. I agree with him that I am a sinner, that I am guilty before God, that I do deserve punishment and wrath from a holy, righteous God. But I bow my knee to Christ and I believe that he is who he says he is, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And I believe that he did what was necessary to appease God's wrath against sin, to to appease God's wrath against my guilt and to cover over my sins with his blood. And if you will do that today, the Bible says you will be saved and you won't have to experience the judgment that is to come. If you're here in that day when Christ comes again, you'll be part of that group that is called up to be with him in the air and you will be with him forevermore. But if you're part of that people who are rebellious, who have bowed their knee to the spirit of this age, who worship the beast in its image by bowing their knee to the spirit of this age, you will suffer the wrath that is to come. Your only hope is Christ. Do not let the sun go down today before you bow your knee to Jesus Christ. You throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. If you need to talk more about what that means, then, hey, send me a message. I'll be glad to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, how you can be saved from the wrath that is to come. That's what salvation ultimately is. Salvation is ultimately being saved from God's wrath because you have bowed your knee to Jesus Christ 
who suffered in your place. Well, that's my spiel. And I know that may raise more questions than, than it provided answers, but hey, that's the best I can do. That's the way uh, that I see it. And there are plenty of other people who may see it a little bit differently uh, than I do, but that's that's my, my spiel. So until next time, may the Lord keep you and bless you and cause his face to shine upon you.